Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word which we've heard this morning. We pray now that as we think about that, those two passages um, and as we reflect on our own lives and circumstances, you would speak into our hearts and minds that we might know how you are challenging us today as well as encouraging us to be courageous church together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are at number five in our sermon series. Um, we are thinking about what it means to be a courageous church. We've thought about confident. We've thought about contagious. We've thought about courage. We've thought about cost. And today we think about being countercultural. A courageous church is countercultural. But what does that mean? Sounds like a foreign language almost, doesn't it? <laughs> Culture, simply defined, is a word for the way of life of groups of people, meaning the way they do things. It's the outlook, the attitudes, the values, the morals, the goals and the customs that are shared by any defined society or group. Often when we talk about culture today, we mean the way of life we live here in the UK in the 21st century. In fact, today, on the 7th of April 2019, maybe. We might talk about how modern culture is different to the past, the technological revolution of the last few years, even the changes in our clothing, the way we eat and shop, the way we spend our time. All these things are part of our culture. So why should a courageous church be countercultural? For some time, there's been quite a debate within Christianity about the whole issue of culture and how we are to deal with it. On the one hand, there are those who look at society and see sin so pervading it, bad things happening all the time, that they decide the only right thing to do is to completely disengage from it. They take their cues from particular passages in Scripture that emphasise the Christian's separateness and difference from the world. They have decided, therefore, that they will dress differently, that they will listen to different music, that they will watch different television if they watch television at all, and generally they will speak around, about the culture around them as being evil or worldly. And then at the other end of the spectrum are those who overemphasize, over I knew this was going to be a hard word to say, overemphasize the importance of engaging with culture so that they make themselves basically just look like the culture of the day. They watch everything their neighbour watches. They consume everything that their neighbours consume. They read everything that everybody else reads. And generally, on the whole, they look no different to the surrounding culture at all. Well, I'd like to suggest that actually there are problems with both these kinds of approaches. The first one is that although the scriptures do emphasise our holiness and our difference from the world, they also emphasise our need to work in and among the world through our vocations, through the things we are called to do and to be. Paul, in his ministry, often quoted pagan poets and writers. And Jesus said, you are in the world, but not of the world. The second approach forgets, indeed, that Jesus even said that over and over again. You are not of this world. And so you're called to be in some way, or to look in some way, different 
We are to be counter-cultural. But how? Do we only watch certain television programmes, read certain types of books, wear particular sorts of clothes, play particular sorts of sport, sing certain songs and hymns, eat particular foods, shop in certain shops, have a mobile phone from the Ark? Well, I don't know that they had mobile phones in the Ark, but you get the idea. So what really is this countercultural thing all about? Well, I've reflected on this for a while, and I suspect that actually it's all to do with what we believe. What we believe about God and the way he operates in the universe. If we think about what we believe, I would dare to suggest that we will automatically be drawn back, wouldn't we, to the cross. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. The cross was the instrument that brought this about. Someone said, who we are is not defined by outward appearance, by what we eat, drink or wear, but by our inward conviction. It is defined first and foremost by the word you believe, specifically what you believe about the cross. There's nothing more countercultural actually than the cross. Why? Well, firstly, because the cross is scandalously weak. That was certainly the majority view of the Jews in Paul's time, as we saw in our reading from Acts about another of his experiences in Philippi. The Jewish people, when they thought of their saviour, were thinking of a conquering king, one who was going to ride into Jerusalem, take his throne and make the Jewish people rulers of the world. Now next Sunday is Palm Sunday and we will think about Jesus riding into Jerusalem. But as a conquering king? Not really. He came, didn't he, on a donkey, the most humble of all beings in the equine world. It was just taken for granted that the Messiah for the Jews was going to be riding on a white charger into Jerusalem and save the world. That's why the cross is weak. You see, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul writes, for the Jews demand signs. And what do we present them with? Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. The words for stumbling block in the Greek can literally be translated as scandal. The idea of the saviour being hung on a cross was absolutely insane to the Jews at the time. In fact, remember, the cross in Jewish theology was a clear sign that one had been cursed. If you were hung on one, that's what had happened to you. Those outside of the church today are just as scandalised by the cross, really. In fact, some even suggest that it might be divine child abuse. The jailer in Acts was so clearly terrified of the Jewish leaders of his day that he decided killing himself was a better option than the leaders thinking he'd let the prisoners escape when there had been an earthquake. But Paul and Silas, countercultural in their behaviour, well, they're singing in their prison cell. Something else is clearly their motivator for their way of life, not their fear of the Jews or even of punishment or even of death. Given the chance of unexpected freedom, they don't take it. They hold on to their integrity. Knowing themselves to be innocent, they stay put. And the jailer is astounded as he hears, don't harm yourself, don't fall on your sword, we're all here. 
One commentator puts it this way. Here's the thing. The cross is scandalous. It's weak. Just think about the message we're presenting to the world. When God, who breathed the universe into existence and holds every galaxy in the palm of his hand, became one of the members of his creation, he did not blast away evil. He did not ride and conquer. He did not gather an army. Rather, he made himself poor, had nowhere to lay his head, and was crucified as a criminal for all criminals, and other sinners too. Instead of killing sinners, he is becoming like them, though without sin himself. It's the equivalent of us pointing you to a man hanging from the gallows and saying, Behold the power of God. It's scandalously weak. And not only is the cross countercultural because it's weak, but secondly, it's countercultural because it's embarrassingly foolish. Paul writes about this often. For Paul, half of the world was Greek speaking, and these people were heavenly influenced by philosophy. When they spoke of the deity of God, they reasoned that matter, the physical stuff of the universe, was bad. In their thinking, God would never take on flesh. He would never stoop so low. When some of them would describe deity, the main word they used was apatheia, which means, as you might guess, apathy. God was said to not care about human affairs. He was utterly unfeeling and remote. And there are many in the world today who would see God in that way. And actually, that's rather convenient for them, isn't it? Because if you have a God who doesn't interact with you, then you don't need to interact with him. You don't need to think about him or relate to him in any way, do you? This kind of God is just far enough away that he really doesn't care what we do morally and he's not going to hold us accountable. So that's great. Live and let live. That's what I say. But now here comes the message of Jesus' cross. It tells us that rather than being unfeeling and remote... Our God is so invested in his creation that he takes on flesh. He so identifies with his creation that he endures hunger and temptation and pain just like we do. In order to save humanity, the message of the cross says, God is so concerned about justice in this world that he endures it and is crucified for your sins. In other words, we don't have to do anything. God has already done it all. So once we believe in it, the cross can and will have an effect on how we live. It will affect our behaviour and our relationships, even our dress, our television watching, our reading, everything about us. Well, it will if we let it. And that's the issue. Will we let it? Just look at the news. We'll gloss over the Brexit stuff because that's just like fed up with that now. So we'll leave that one aside. Although as Christians we shouldn't, but we'll leave it aside for a minute. People are drowning in debt and an inability to manage money. Will the church help people with that? Will we, be, will we show countercultural ways of dealing with money management? CAP courses do just that. If you want to know more about those, have a chat with me afterwards. And what about us? 
Do we need help? Let's face it. Money is one of the do not go there of faith. But if it's what we need help with, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we ask somebody for help? Another thing, people don't seem to know how to say sorry anymore, do they? To admit their mistakes, to forgive each other in a society that always says, well, I'm right. I'm always right. We have a high arrogance and low self-esteem society today. But if we live the way of the cross, I don't think we can do anything else but say sorry when we need to say sorry. Admit our mistakes when we need to admit our mistakes. After all, forgiveness is the one thing that's been done for us. Why wouldn't we do it for others? Perhaps one of the greatest challenges in our highly connected culture is that people have access to so much information and possibility they don't really know what to do with it all. So if you use the jolly old thing called Google, which has kind of been added to our dictionary, which I think is very weird, but there we are, it has. If you use that thing and you type in a little phrase, you can have a wealth of information that comes up that tells you all about it. Things that you can understand and maybe things that you can't understand. Things that can really encourage you or things that can really make you worried. We are wearing ourselves out. Stress and depression affect so many people today. Learning how to organise time and energy and priorities to recapture good living, real life, can surely help people find, in the midst of their life, something beautiful. When life seems out of control, where do we turn? What do we do? Maybe we all need to ask this question of ourselves every day. Am I living in a way today that will help me thrive tomorrow? The jailer said to Paul, what must I do to be saved? In his crisis of culture, as he prepares to fall on his sword, he sees something good in Paul and Silas's culture, their way of life. I wonder what the people around us see in us, in our way of life. Do they see justice? Do they see mercy? Do they see forgiveness? Do they see people with great joy and delight in living life? Do they see people who are encouraged? Do they see people who are courageous? That's the question, isn't it? Are we able to be courageous and live the kind of life that was outlined to Nicodemus by Jesus? who had to go against the culture of the day. So he was a church leader. He had to creep along at night to go and have a conversation with Jesus in order to save himself. But the life that was outlined for him was a life that was the way of the cross, the life that is countercultural. And it isn't just for us, is it? But it's for our whole society in which we live, for the kingdom of God here in our parish, our town, our country, in all of God's creation. It seems to me that this is not just a one-off question. This is a question that we're going to have to come back to. I could go on and on with this sermon, but you wouldn't be very pleased if I did. And coffee will loom, and then our annual meeting, and then our lunch. And I could still be talking about this because it is such a big issue. So I actually want to challenge us to not leave this here in this sermon 
but to talk with each other about how we can live lives that speak differently into society. How can we help each other and everyone else live life in the way of the cross? We need to talk about it more. And then we need to try and practice it too. We need to try and practice living countercultural lives so that the kingdom of God may grow and glory comes to his name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know each of us inside out. You know the things that are important for us. And you know the things that you would like to be more important for us. Help us to know all of those things and to find the countercultural way in which you want us to live. And help us to help each other to do that in the name of Jesus Christ, our living Saviour. Amen. <laughs>